how a local shirt maker can afford to compete. First of all, American product is not inexpensive. It can't be because of the labor. When you're competing with China where it's $2.50 high end for a day and we're paying, you know, $11, $12 an hour, there's just no way that you can bring those numbers together without selling a higher cost product. How much sun do you really need and how do you measure it? We think of sunlight as part of the health triangle. People know about exercise. They know about nutrition. Sunlight is the missing component to that. It has an effect on your wake, your energy, your sleep, how you feel. It actually has a huge effect on mood as well. The local company that has made Brooks Brothers suits for every POTUS since Lincoln. And with so many immigrant workers, they speak 15 languages in the factory. It takes 185 minutes to make a jacket in the United States or in the Far East. It's just what you pay your employees. We view our people as our biggest asset. This is The Language of Business, a podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone considering a startup. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, we look at three products that are still made in the USA. Here's Greg. Thanks, Don. Entrepreneurs often buck trends, but would you have the guts to invest in a 200-year-old manufacturing mill when all you read in the news are the merits of offshore cheap labor? Bob Kidder isn't phased by these trends at all. He's the president of New England Shirt Company. And Bob, welcome to The Language of Business. Thank you for asking me to be here. In the height of a recession, you were an executive here at the company, but then you decided to buy it even in the wake of all jobs going overseas. What caused you to make that decision? First and primary most was that I believed in the people that made product here. The history of this factory, it's been here for a long, long time. It's been actively making shirts for 75 years. This is a life and a love for the people that work here. So the first and most important thing was I believed in the people. The second part of it was I've grown up in American factories. My parents were manufacturers. I believe in Made in America. I've always believed that we make beautiful product and that if it's marketed properly that there's room, despite the price points, for people that appreciate American quality. How did you finance it? Is it self-financed? Did you look for outside investors or was it employee purchased? That time period, as you correctly pointed out, it was a recession and the SBA was looking for ways to help small businesses get started. So there was money available from the SBA. And then I went to a couple of different angel groups and I was very fortunate to find amongst one of those angel groups, a person local, which was somewhat of a prerequisite for me. I wasn't looking for venture capital money because this isn't the kind of story that venture capital appreciates. But I was looking for somebody that wanted a local story, that cared about the jobs, and cared about Made in America. And I was lucky enough to find one person that met all of those criteria. And the great part about that is he not only has been a great financial supporter, but he's become a very close friend. So it's a win-win in that sense. Why only high-end shirts and not other products? It's what we do best. We are specializing in something, and the idea here is not to try to be something we're not, but rather to captivate an audience and capitalize on something we do really well. And what we really do well are shirts. And why high-end shirts only? Price points, margins. First of all, American product is not inexpensive. It can't be because of the labor. You know, we pay above union wages. When you're competing with 
China where it's two dollars and fifty cents high end for a day and we're paying you know eleven twelve dollars an hour there's just no way that you can bring those numbers together without selling a higher cost product we don't try to sell to Macy's we don't try to sell to any of those people we can't but we do try to sell to better specialty stores to e-commerce business to Nordstrom's to the better people in the market that can take the price point and do something with it where do you draw your labor from besides a walking radius around the factory? Fall River in general. I mean, historically, Fall River was always a needle town, as was New Bedford. And there have been people here for many, many years that have grown up sewing. And if you walk down and take a look at our floor, we've not only taken advantage of the historical fact, but we've tried to recruit younger people. We have different denominations from different countries, and so we're trying to broaden the work base all the time, but the base is still Fall River. And how about the designers? Are they also purely made in America? You're looking at the designer at the moment. There are no American fabrics, so that's not something, unfortunately, that we can take advantage of. All the fabrics come from overseas, but the ideas for what the shirts represent are certainly American. We pay attention to what's going on in Italy and in France and all over the world because that's where great design takes place. But we incorporate that into what we think is appropriate for our clientele. When you're sitting in the buyer's office at Nordstrom's and you're telling your story, do they care at all? Yes and no. They certainly care that it's made in America. Nordstrom actually made product in this factory for 10, 15 years. All of the Fasenab product was made here. Using them as an example, they're aware of this factory. And they care about made in America, certainly. But at the end of the day, it's two things. It's going to be quality. Then it becomes a discussion about price. One of the nice things that I find that's going on now is there are really two different types of retail stores. You have the classic specialty store, the Mitchells and the Richards of the world, the Mr. Sid in Boston, sure. the really fine stores, the better specialty stores. But there's a whole new generation of younger people that are starting either e-commerce businesses or different types of retail ventures. And they're very aware of Made in America today. You know, the younger consumer doesn't necessarily want to own a lot of stuff. He wants to own something that he believes in, that's well-made, that he can stand behind and say, I'd rather own one of those than five of the other things. So quality is still important. Anything that keeps you up at night about your business? Making product in the United States is, has to be a passion because it's not easy. What hasn't been easy about it? building something from scratch. I mean, the business had been here for a while, but basically when I started, I didn't have an order. And this year between Trunk Club, which is our, one of our largest accounts and one of our best relationships, and Ralph Lauren and the specialty store business, we'll do 50 or 60,000. But that didn't take place in one year. It started with, you know, 100 shirts in Buffalo and grew because it was made in America. And then it grew a little bit more because it was quality and people liked the story. The angel that I talked about stuck with us through thick and thin. And most importantly, the people downstairs, the sewers, the cutters, all of these people, they believe in what they do. Bob, thank you. Bob Kidder, the president of New England Shirt Company here in Fall River, Massachusetts. Coming up, the way to know how much sun you really need and a way to measure it. Plus the local business that's made Brooks Brothers suits for every POTUS since Lincoln. With so many immigrant workers, they speak 15 languages in the factory. As the language of business look at Made in America continues. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Retailers are full of lotions to reduce exposure to sunlight. But don't tell that to Ed Likovich. His business is all about tracking sunlight in order to be healthier. And welcome to the language of business. Thank you for having me. Why track sunlight? 
We think of sunlight as part of the health triangle, which we call it. People know about exercise. You're supposed to get you know, 30 minutes a couple times a week. They know about nutrition. Sunlight is the missing component to that. It has an effect on just about everything that you do. Your wake, your energy, your sleep, how you feel. It actually has a huge effect on mood as well. So for people who suffer from depression, this can be a big deal. How does it work? Is it a Fitbit for sun? Yeah, that's a fair way to describe it. So I'm wearing a sun sprite here, and I'll walk you through the device. So the first thing is the way that it attaches. It has a flexible magnetic clasp that you can attach in the way that's right for you. A lot of people, men wear it on their shirts, and women tend to attach it to a purse strap or something like that. It's also completely solar powered. No cords, no cables, nothing to remember. You just get your sunlight and it keeps it charged forever. And then the thing is simple to operate. There's a single button that I press on the top and that causes a series of lights to light up. If it were a nice bright and sunny day outside and I was outside, it would all fill up and it would do a little light dance. What is the optimal amount of sun then? So it's about 30 minutes of bright sunlight each day. And if you can't get the absolute bright amount, which is considered 10,000 lux, which is on a bright sunny day here, even in the winter, you can get 10,000 lux. You can get a lower amount of sun for more amount of time. What happens to the data the device collects? So this is our Sunsprite app, and this is the home screen, which is available on the iPhone right now. And so you'll see immediately there's a bright glowing sun in the middle that shows your daily progress. And you can see in the top corners here, there's a UV intensity and there's a battery level indicator, so you can keep track of both of those things. Right below it, this is something that users find very helpful, is it shows you the current intensity of light where you are right now and the number of minutes to go that you need in order to reach your daily goal. So a 64% means that you have 64% effective sunlight or you're 64% of the way to getting your 30 minutes? You're 64% of the way to your 30 minutes, so it's towards your goal. If you think of Fitbit and their 10,000 steps, it's very similar to that. You need your 30 minutes of 10,000 lux light and that's how we track it here. We also have a number of tabs that you can see. So here is a, uh, I clicked on the trends tab here and that shows you my daily progress. So you can actually zoom in over the course of a day and see, okay, what was I doing? Where was I getting my light? And you can see on the bottom here, there's a scale too that shows it's in green. There's kind of the x-axis is in green and I'll show you a red area near my bedtime. If I scroll later, you can see that at the bottom there that it's actually red. That tells me green is good time to get my light, red's a bad time to get my light. Meaning first thing in the morning might be better sunlight yep. unless you're a late sleeper. That's right. right. And if you're a late sleeper, you want to get it when you wake up if you're happy with your sleep schedule and then you want to avoid the light before you go to bed. And then we have a fun little trends page where we have little badges and awards that you can win that keeps people motivated and excited. And we, we just had a guy from Australia actually unlock the, the brightest self badge, which we've never seen somebody do yet. So that's, that's been fun. The focus of our segment is on made local and bought local. Why have you established Boston as your base? Boston is one of the core centers in the U.S. for life sciences and biotech research. I mean, we have Harvard, we have MIT, we have BC, we have BU. It was just terrific universities around here. And the technology actually came from two Harvard psychiatrists. So there's people engaged with the battle against depression and for health in Boston. It just makes sense to be here around. There's a huge innovation scene. There's a huge health scene. And I can't imagine anywhere better to be. Outside of the many universities and hospitals, what makes the innovation community in Boston unique? Yeah, I think it's people giving back who have prospered from the innovation economy. So I, it's amazing to me, and it was completely eye-opening, how you can reach out to somebody who is you know, CEO of some corporation, you know, who once started down here where we are, and say, can I grab 15 minutes of your time? I have a question about you know, marketing to consumers, and I know you did this really well, and I'd like to ask you about it. And they always respond by saying, yes, here's 15 minutes of my schedule, we can have a call. Being able to take advantage of that kind of body of institutional knowledge has just been critical for us. Boston might have a lot of innovation, but it's high cost. Does that factor into your decision making? Uh, sure, it does. And high cost comes with high quality. And so that's, you know, that's part of the reason to be here is to, to have that quality of resources around. You know, having somebody who's a drive in terms of Connecticut or a plane flight away for our electronics people, you know, just 
it's a three-hour thing. There's no language barrier. We can get it right the first time we manufacture something. And then in terms of sales, just being able to sell to customers, we want to be as close to the customers as we can. We're launching a new business. We have a ton of product market hypotheses. And the closer we are to people and the more we can talk to them, the better we're able to understand, do we have the right product? And you know, we hope eventually that's going to lead to large international business. But right now, we're focused on really nailing down our product and our customer. Would you consider actively marketing customers outside the United States? Yeah, I think we would. We're not close to that yet. We ran a crowdfunding campaign in which international people purchased it, and it turned out to be a bit of a logistical hassle to ship things to different country, and what's the form you need to have, and what's the statement, and what's the invoice preparation. So that, that took us more time than we wanted, but it was, it was good to reach those people at least once. Do your customers resonate to the fact that it's made in the United States? Yeah, they do. A lot of people really like that aspect of the product. To them, it signifies quality. It signifies that there are people here that talk to you when you have a problem. And that's you know another big thing is customer services. We handle all of that. And to have somebody write in and then have a response come back from a real human instead of a robot is a big deal for a lot of people, too. Do people give you a nod because it's Boston-based technology? Yeah, I think so, especially the locals around here. I mean, we sell more devices in Massachusetts you know, on a population-adjusted basis than anywhere else. And where is your factory? It's in South Dakota. Our electronics are made in South Dakota, and our plastics are done in Connecticut. And then they're assembled, and then they're shipped to us, and we take care of everything from there. And how did you choose? Those are two fairly opposite locations. Why yeah. South Dakota and why Connecticut? Yeah, a lot of it is personal referral at this stage. You know, we've got to manufacture a product. We're doing it for the first time. It's really easy to mess this up. You call a lot of people, you talk to people, who have you used, what did you find, what didn't you find? And then there's a visitation process where you go out and see the factory and, you know, you meet Becky, who is actually assembling, and, you know, it's Becky that's doing this. And there's a problem, we talked to Becky. And so yeah, having that personal relationship was really important to us. So it doesn't always come down to cost. It's about that cost and that personal relationship and the confidence that somebody's there as a partner with you. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. Ed Likovich, the CEO of Good Lux Technology. Still to come, the local business that has made Brooks Brothers suits for every POTUS since Lincoln. And they have so many immigrant workers, they speak 15 languages in the factory. That's next on The Language of Business. If you enjoy listening to podcasts, and I'm guessing you do because you've gotten this far into this one, let me tell you about another one I think you'll enjoy. It's called The Story Behind Her Success. If you want to get someone's attention, just tell them a great story. That's what The Story Behind Her Success with Candy O'Terry is all about. Once a week, she'll make your day and change your life by introducing you to a woman whose story is so powerful, you'll never forget it. The program host is award-winning broadcaster Candy O'Terry. She's been the Massachusetts Broadcaster Association Broadcaster of the Year and winner of 18 Gracie Allen Awards. Candy has interviewed over 800 women from every walk of life, so there's no stumbling around in this podcast. Success is so much more than the outcome. It's about the journey. It's a story of how you got there. So buckle up and go along for the ride. The story behind her success with Candy O'Terry available wherever you get podcasts. One more time, back to Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. He's a suit maker, and his suits are worn by corporate executives, ambassadors, even presidents. How do you get to that level? John Martinek, welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks for having me. You are the CEO of Southwick. What is the difference between Southwick and Brooks Brothers? Southwick and Brooks Brothers are synonymous with traditional American clothing. Both very great organizations. Southwick has been manufacturing clothing for Brooks Brothers for many years, but both stand on equal terms based on the products that they make and who they sell to. 
Do you only manufacture for Brooks Brothers or do you also have other private label brands? Well, we manufacture for Brooks Brothers predominantly. We also manufacture our Southwick brand and we manufacture for a slew of different companies in the United States. A lot of designers or companies that want U.S. made products. And we found out that there's a new niche out there for a younger consumer. And these younger consumers really are enamored with products made in the United States. Is that from social consciousness or something else? More from social consciousness. And I think the younger consumer now, you know, they want to understand if your factory is green, if you're socially compliant, and they are more in tune with the manufacturing process than I was at their age. And where do you draw your labor from? Our labor is predominantly from the Merrimack Valley. We have people from the local area. We have people from... Lowell from New Hampshire. So we pool from an immigrant workforce. Predominantly it's immigrant workforce and we work with Catholic charities as far as finding refugees and helping them assimilate into our workforce as well. Is English the only language that's spoken in your factory? We speak 15 different languages. 15 different languages. But we offer English as a second language four days a week and uh, we teach our employees English as best we can. And how do you deal with the perennial 800-pound gorilla in the room that U.S. labor costs are higher than they are overseas? They are higher. But the thing is that direct labor is a value add. Where it costs you more money is indirect overheads, things like that, and we use technology to help us offset those costs. It takes 185 minutes to make a jacket in the United States or in the Far East. It's just what you pay your employees. So knowing that they make a livable wage, they have good benefits, there's a value to it. It might not be for everyone, but a lot of people like the fact that they can buy the clothing made in the United States. And how about your fabrics? Are they all American made as well? Predominantly the fabrics come from England or Europe or Italy. But we're recently starting to work with a company about making fabrics again in the United States. As a U.S. manufacturer of clothing, you are bucking a trend. Do you find it helps or hurts you not to have a peer group immediately surrounding your operations? I think we compete on a global scale. It's not regionalized anymore. And I think what's happened, the world has gotten so small that, you know, you can talk to your retailers, so you can talk to manufacturers, you can talk to different people in this industry. And I think there's enough there that we can understand what we're up against, how we have to deal with things based on legislation. What sorts of legislation affects you? Duties. You're looking at how can you help with reducing tariffs on things. We're looking at possibly turning our factories into duty-free zones, which will help us from a standpoint of importing and exporting products. It will help us open up a gateway that not only are you making for this country, but making it more of a global organization. How do you deal with transportation costs? Transportation costs, it can become difficult but probably it's much better shipping here via UPS or FedEx than shipping it's another method from overseas. But let me push back. If you're importing from overseas, you might be ordering 500 or 1,000 suits per batch. My guess is that you're not sending that volume to a West Coast retailer. No, you don't. But also what you can do by manufacturing in the United States, you don't have to buy 500 per batch. You can buy smaller numbers. And I think that's our advantage of making USA. So if you don't sell through all 500, that cost of carrying that inventory, is it really a savings or not? So I think that's where you kind of look at what the additional upfront cost is as opposed to not having too much obsolescence. As businesses grow, they've got two options. They can expand it to other locations or outsource their workforce. How has that affected you here at Southwick? What has happened here at Southwick is that there's a reinvestment in young professionals. 
we know that this industry has been decimated by going offshore. Finding someone in their mid-50s is still a young person in this industry. So we've reached out to different colleges, engineering schools, and we're bringing people on board, mentoring them to be the future leaders of this industry. What is the average employment tenure here? We have people that have worked here over 40 years, and some as recent as just a few months, but we view our people as our biggest asset. It's easy to invest in a facility, easy to invest in equipment. The people is what is key, and that's what's important here is investing in the people that they can learn this craft and take it into the future. If you had to start Southwick from scratch today, would you do anything differently? Well, that's an interesting question, you know, and I think we've had a very good recipe with what we've done. It's always changing. So I think the only investment or change that we'd probably do is, is in our mindset because you have to keep an open mind. In manufacturing in the United States, it's all about what you can do and not say why you can't do it. And what's an example of what you can do? We can do anything. That's our philosophy here is if you can think it, you can do it. And that's what we live by. John, thank you very much. Thank you. John Martinek, the CEO of Southwick here in Haverhill, Massachusetts. Don. Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. We now have downloads in 45 countries. Welcome to Egypt and Croatia, plus 33 states and D.C. Thank you for the support. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.